Ripple Puddle. Welcome to Ripple Puddle. Welcome to Ripple Puddle. Rip, 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 oh. Ripple Puddle. Ripple Puddle. Do you believe that the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil can set off a tornado in Texas? There's no way to definitively say, because in a chaotic system, small disturbances grow exponentially fast, rendering long-term prediction impossible. But what does that mean? If you think about all the times you've looked back at the connectors in your life that led to a certain event, many seem strange in that they're minuscule, but somehow vital. When you reflect on the past, it makes you look at events in the present differently, perhaps with expectation or curiosity. That expectation, curiosity, evaluation is what Carl Jung called synchronicity. Quote, it is a meaningful coincidence of outer and inner events that are not themselves causally connected. So meaningfulness is the most important distinction between coincidence and synchronicity. The events and relationships that shape our lives seem attached to something, a distant cord that we can't see. But can we feel it? And can this cord keep us attached to the people we love after they've died? Katie tells her story. I got my mother's eyes and my father's hair. Does anybody really care? It's getting cold out here. So I've been swimming in letters written from my mother. I could pick one from Christmas. I could pick one from when my son was born. I could pick one from when I was married. And I would still probably not be happy. I feel like it's hard to put to words Donna Kuntz. This is an example of uh, something she wrote me. I'm going to read. Mumble years ago, a beautiful baby girl was placed in my arms. I felt a new and different responsibility after sons. I didn't know how far we could go or how long this special feeling could last. Well, it has lasted. I guess we have stood the test of time. I'm still standing and you're still testing. Kidding. You've written so many beautiful words to me. I guess I've written a few to you. Most of them were well-deserved. You went from pink dresses to jeans and leather. I guess we've been through a lot together. You might have known I'd have, have to end in a rhyme. I just had to get one in one more time. Well, I can't climb any more mountains with you, darling daughter, but I will walk with you forever more. She always signed it more because it was like we had fights as a kid. It was, I love you more. I love you the most. I love you more. She said, well, you'll understand when you have a kid that I love you more. Uh, my mother and I were very close, to say the least. She really wanted a baby girl. It was 1962. She had a think pink shower and uh, she had two sons that were 10 and seven years older than me. So she was a beauty pageant woman, uh, very glamorous, East Texas, later on South Texas, oil money mom. But she was a smart ass. Uh, her nickname was Dirty Donna. She told a lot of dirty jokes. And she was a Leo, I'm very proud of it. She always said she was 29 and holding. She was 77 when she died. Uh, did her prayers under the moon, to the moon. 
I was a moon child, and on my seventh birthday, they walked on the moon. And when I lived in California, she would have me go out and look at the moon at the same time she would look at the moon so we could be together. Um, my mother helped me in many ways because I was diagnosed with hepatitis C in 1985, and then all the treatments from hepatitis C caused me to get rheumatoid arthritis, and so I had lots of health problems. For a woman that wanted had a think pink shower and had everyone wear something pink and was decided to will my genitals into the female genitalia, um, it worked, though it didn't work for my mind. I am identified as transgender. I never really identified with a girl's body, but she was able to will the body, not quite the mind, into a girl's body. So she dressed me in fairly dresses until I could tear them off at about age two or three. And then she let me cut my hair and um, let me stop wearing dresses if I didn't have to, special occasions. But she let me wear jeans and carry some fake guns around and cut a you know, pixie haircut, you know. I was very dependent on her for money. Our family was for my health stuff, could run thousands of dollars per year. She paid for me to go to the acupuncturist every week and to um, get a massage every week. She would always say, you know, someday I'm not going to be here. You're going to have to learn how to have your own stash of cash because, you know, I can't bail you out. I'm going to die someday, and I really never wanted to hear that. Right before she died, it was South by Southwest, and my band was playing. And I was getting, I was running around trying to get new CDs. Uh, our very first single, Sugarloaf Mountain, out. She had paid for the studio time. We were so excited. My wallet fell out on the ground, and somebody that was visiting Austin took the wallet, started spending money, and flew back to Florida until somebody caught it. I uh, yeah, told my mother, oh my God, I've lost another wallet with your credit card in it. But so she was supposedly sending me a new credit card. Then she got sick and I went down there and she asked me, did you get the credit card? I said, I didn't actually get the credit card and think much more about it. I begged her a lot to quit smoking and drinking. I knew she was not well. We got in pretty many fights about that. She never did stop smoking. I had a terrible dream that um, about her legs. She had had her carotid arteries done, and uh, so I called her and said, I had a terrible nightmare. You have to do your legs, and she said, you're right. So she went in to get her stent. It wasn't gonna be any big deal, and I called her and she said, oh, they can't do it. They said they're gonna have to do a pipe bypass of my legs because the arteries are too brittle. Um, when they got in to do the bypass, it didn't really work because all her arteries were too brittle and within a week she had died. I was with her when she died. She and I had spent many hours talking about our connection and if one of us died, how we would come back, visit one another. and. After she died, I was distraught, but I was really distraught about the fact that I couldn't feel her as much as I thought I would be able to feel her until way later when things began to happen. But for a long time, I, I could not feel her. I even went to see John Edward a month later to see if she would come through from the other side. And no mom, no Donna Koontz, and she was very body bold and brash and thought if anybody can get through, it'd be her. My mother died within a week, and I had to make the decision, actually, to not do another surgery that would probably have had my mother with a colostomy bag at best. She might have lost her legs. She was extremely vain, and she was unable to talk because she never had the breathing tube removed from her, her throat. And uh, I had to look in her eyes and decide by her looking in my eyes whether she would want 
this to go on or not. And I decided by looking in her eyes, she was saying she did not want to have the surgery. We let her go. And my dad was really dependent. And we had to take care of him because he hadn't even paid a bill since 19, probably 30. Came home. I feel really sad for a whole year. I don't feel much I get some dreams from mom, but I'm in hell because the money, all my chickens have come home to roost. And my dad, because he didn't know how much things cost, you know, he might send me a hundred dollars here or there. I'm struggling trying to figure out how to uh, make up that extra few thousand dollars my mother would give us every month. I was on a learning curve. Band's over, we're practicing. We found out that we were gonna get to go play San Francisco Gay Pride. They were, they asked us to come play main stage. I was thrilled, and we had to figure out how to earn money for that. So we did a Kickstarter. My band was at my house. We were playing, getting ready for it, and the last band member, Julie, was leaving. And I walked her outside, and I got the mail off the front porch. And I said, bye, and I looked at the mail, and I saw, oh, there's a letter from my mom. This is a year later to the month. My mother died uh, March 30th, and this was dated, uh, it had to be March 17th around South By. I look at it, and I say, I'm like, oh, my God, a letter from Mom. A whole year has gone by. I yell out at Julie. My bass player said, stop, come back. This letter is my mother's handwriting, and it's all beaten up. I open it, and it's a letter from my mom that has been lost in the mail for a whole year. In the letter is a credit card, and it says, Don't lose this one, darling. Good luck with your show. I love you. And that was it. And I just fell out on the front porch crying. <laughs> it began a series of what I thought were visitations from my mom where things began to happen in her bathroom at home. When I would go visit, it was my mom's bathroom, where she went to cry, it's where she went to do everything. Every time I'd go visit my dad, the lights would flicker, things would happen, you could feel her. It, that began the story. Won't you buy me a Mercedes, Just when you seem to yourself nothing but a flimsy web of questions, you were given the questions of others to hold in the emptiness of your hands. Songbird eggs that can still hatch if you keep them warm. Butterflies opening and closing themselves in your cupped palms, trusting you not to injure their skintillant fur, their dust. You were given the questions of others as if they were answers to all you ask. Yes, perhaps this gift is your answer. Is existence as linear as our five senses inform? Synchronicity gives us a sense of hope that something is happening just beyond the reach of perception. And when we see it unfold, it's a pretty delicious feeling. Here's Melissa with her story. This happened in New Orleans. This was uh, 13 years ago. So it was pre-flood of 2005 New Orleans, pre-handy-dandy smartphone New Orleans where you can Google anything on the spot. This was back when if you wanted to know something, you actually had to ask somebody. 
So I was about five months pregnant with my very first baby, and I had the chance to go to New Orleans with my mother-in-law, who was going there for a conference. And at the time, she asked me to go with her because,、uh, you know, just to get away from my really stressful job as a magazine editor in, in Dallas. And she sweet-talked me out of the trip by saying, "The only thing you have to do is sleep late and eat beignets." And try to find some shrimp po'boys to eat every once in a while. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll go. So we didn't know the sex of the baby yet. The sonogram to determine the sex was still a couple of weeks off, but I knew really early on in the pregnancy that this baby was a girl. And in fact, I named her very quickly Lucy Blessing. And my husband trusted my gut instincts, so we were. Twenty weeks into this pregnancy, without ever even once considering a boy name, we spent our evenings after work doing your typical first parent stuff. We'd just rub the belly and talk to Lucy and sing to Lucy, and we knew when Lucy was hungry and when she was the most active, which was about five a.m. So when my mother-in-law asked me to go with her to New Orleans, my husband encouraged me to go, and he said, "But I really want a picture of the statue of Ignatius J. Riley from Confederacy of Dunces. That's really the only thing that I would like for you to do while you're there. If you can find that and get a picture of it, that's my favorite book, and I would really, really love that. I sort of had a mission as well as going for some relaxation. So when we got to New Orleans." I'd go out and I'd walk around, take pictures of weird stuff in the French Quarter, and I'd look at the tugboats in the harbor, and I'd sit on these ornate metal benches and rub my Lucy belly and think about my grandma, who was also pregnant and had my aunt in New Orleans many, many, many years ago. Everywhere I went, I asked people, "Do you know where the Ignatius J. Riley statue is?" And people would just. Rub their chins and not know what I was talking about, or they'd say, "Oh, I know, I, I knew where that was at one time, but I don't know anymore." And everywhere I went, I asked people about the statue, and it got to be kind of like a conversation starter. I never found anybody who knew where the statue was. One night, the night before we left, I told my mother-in-law, "I was like, well, I've run out of things to do." She goes, "Well, you know, we're here in New Orleans. You might as well go tap into some voodoo stuff and go get your、uh, fortune told, or go down to the quarter and get your tea leaves read, or something like that. If you're going to do that anywhere, this is the place to do it." So I went walking around the next day, and I found this place that looked like everything that you would think that a New Orleans French Quarter tea leaf reading salon would look like. I mean, it had the tall windows with the green shutters, and you know, there's the period furniture with everything's velvet, and they usher you back to this sort of gypsy tent setting with bohemian fabrics draped everywhere. And I sit down in this kind of hushed, quiet atmosphere with these candles burning and strange music. And in walks this older lady. She sits down and she wants to know if I have any questions for her. And I said, "Well, not really, but I guess I'm gonna have a baby. I guess I would like to know if it's a boy or a girl." She said, "Well, before we get into all of that, 
would you like for me to record this for you? And I said, oh yeah, that would be great. And she goes, you can just take the cassette tape home with you and you can listen to it whenever you want. It's on the house. So I said, sure, great. We get into the whole palm reading and the tarot cards and she even does my tea leaf reading at some point. So this is a very thorough going over of all of my mystic stuff, right? So finally at the end, I just asked her, I said, so what about the baby? I want to know, is the baby a girl or a boy? And she said, the baby is definitely a boy. And I just froze. I just knew everything in my body knew that this baby was a girl and that it was Lucy. She was telling me, no, this baby's a boy. He's going to grow up. He's going to have curly black hair and big blue eyes. I just couldn't believe what she was saying. And at the same time, she was so adamant that this baby was a boy. Somehow, I was able to gather my wits about me enough to ask her, all right, well, do you happen to know where the Ignatius J. Riley statue is? You know, he was the, I can't find that statue anywhere, and I really would like to have a picture of it to take back for my husband, because that's his favorite book. And she said, oh yeah, I know exactly where that is. And so she sat down and drew me a map exactly where it was. She was the only person in New Orleans uh, out of probably 20 people that I asked, including cab drivers. This madam was the only one who knew where this obscure statue was. And that convinced me even more that I was wrong about this baby and that she knew things that nobody else did. I waddled right out of that place and with my camera around my neck and with the map in my hand and walked straight to Ignatius J. Riley and took his picture. Heading back to the hotel and packing up and taking the shuttle to the airport, I was pretty beat down. I couldn't believe that I was wrong, that my gut instinct, I mean, this thing that was literally growing in my gut, that I was wrong about it, that I just knew, I knew that Lucy was in my body, that she was there. So I get on the airplane and I'm sort of staring out the window and kind of trying to get my head around this information before I get home and tell my husband that we are indeed having a boy. I start digging around in my in my purse for the uh, cassette tape and I pull it out and I'm looking at it and it's got this frilly sticker on it. It says, you know, thank you for coming in for your reading today. And I pop open the case and I look at it and it says, your reading today was done by, and it's got this blank that whoever did the reading can sign her name. And I got to looking at the signature and it said, Madam Lucy. And I thought, um, mm, yep, there it is. Proof that I was right. Sure enough, five months later, here she came, Lucy Blessing. And we also have our beloved snapshot of um, Ignatius J. Riley. Lucy was right, and Madam Lucy was wrong. Hot tips. Mm, hot tips. If you have to ask why, you already know the answer. This episode's hot tip is brought to you by Jennifer Falconer, director of Austin School of Classical Ballet in Austin, Texas. If you want to learn to dance like a Russian ballerina, check out our website at www.austinschoolclassicalballet.com. 
Sometimes sync presents itself as an understanding of our own personal power. Here's Camila with her story. I grew up in Santiago de Chile um, in a really bad neighborhood where cops would not even enter, where there was a lot of drugs and death and crime, um, just basically people living to survive. It's like a jungle of humans. I was about 11 years old and I told my father I was going to go to a friend's house. Um, so he said, you know, okay, go to your friend's house and uh, take the bus. And if it's too late, um, call me, I'll pick you up. He used to be a, a taxi driver back then, so he wouldn't have issues picking me up. I'm at my friend's house. We're celebrating the first communion. We're dancing, we're, we're having a good time. We're, we're being silly. All of a sudden, I start feeling really sick. I felt like there was like two hands trying to get out of my chest. Like literally, if two hands were inside me and just were slowly pushing and like ripping my muscles. Um, the pain was so severe, I faint. I couldn't wake up. <laughs> and uh, when I woke up, um, my friends were there and my friend's mom was there and she told me she had called my father to come pick me up. I told my friend's mom I, I could not move. I literally could barely move my head and my body was like paralyzed. And I'm telling you, I'm like 11 years old. I'm not, I'm a little girl. I've never felt any pain like this before. My father gets there and um, he tells me what happened. I just tell him I remember feeling really sick and uh, passing out. So he's like, okay, we'll go home. You seem very weak. I told him I could not move. My body was really ill and I was pointing at places where I felt really sore, which it was like my back and parts of my stomach and my chest. He said, you know, maybe you're stressing and, and it was summertime at the time. So he immediately said, you know, it could be the heat. It's really hot outside. Maybe you got dehydrated. And I said to myself, you know, maybe that was the case. We get in the car and I'm, I'm, he's driving. We're driving home. And I tell him, hey, dad, did something happen? He said, no. What do you mean? I'm like, did someone get hurt? I would like to have you talk to my brothers and have you talked to mom and my sister? He's like, no, baby. Like, nobody got hurt. You're just, you're scared. Whatever you felt has you delusional. You need to drink some liquids. I tell him, no, no, no. I know. I knew something was wrong. He's just going along with me. He really like things. I'm just being delusional from passing out and being weak. I tell him something happened, Dad. Just listen to me. Did you call? You need to call my brother. Is he okay? We um, get home and I tell my mom. My mom was crying. She said, "You know, you really scared us. Are you okay?" And I am like still really weak. So I get to bed. And the minute I get to bed, I mean, this is within five minutes of me being home or less um someone calls and they pick up the phone and we're talking about like it's about eight o'clock at night and they tell us that my brother that lived in the north of chile it's about 18 hours driving where i was at he had been stabbed 16 times on his stomach shoulders and chest and um, that he was in crucial conditions and they did not think he was gonna make it my dad, all he can think is me feeling everything that happened to my brother and he's just speechless. He just comes to my room, gives me a hug and starts crying. Tells me he's uh, really sorry that I felt everything and I don't know what's going on because he's not talking to me clearly. So then my mom comes and she's like, your brother got stabbed. 16 times and all the spots he got stabbed are the spots where you felt pain. 
they tried to get a hold of him and he, he was in crucial condition so he, he couldn't talk to anyone. The doctor said that they were going to try to see if they could talk to him tomorrow. So we waited till the next day. My, my father flew over there immediately to, to go see him. It's crazy because when my dad gets there, my brother could barely talk, tells my dad the story. He said that he was uh, at a park. You know, he's a college student, so he was just hanging out at a park, he was smoking a joint, and this guy comes up to him and he's like, hey, dude, you have a quarter. So my brother, you know, a big hippie, good, he's like, yeah, I don't have a quarter, man, I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a college student, but I have a cigarette, or do you want a joint? And the guy was like, no, I said I want a fucking quarter. Don't you understand? And so my brother gets upset. He's like, hey, you know, I just told you I'm broke as fuck. I am a college student. I just offered you a joint. Don't be disrespectful to me so then they start fighting all of a sudden my brother is um, black belt in karate so he starts choking the guy or just fighting the guy whistles and 10 more guys come out of nowhere and they all start fighting my brother was just with, like other two friends so it was like three guys against like 10 um, so they were just fighting and you know kicking each other's ass and all of a sudden he see my brother sees both of his friends running and he's like why are you guys running and he's like you're bleeding you're bleeding everywhere and he's like I'm not bleeding and he looks down and he's covered in blood and that's the last thing he remembers he said he felt no pain absolutely no pain and my dad didn't want to freak him out but um, after uh, two weeks or so later he told my brother the story how I felt everything the exact time he got stabbed and how I felt all the pain and he didn't feel any until today, we don't really have an explanation of how it happened or if it was a coincidence that we just, it's something like I get the chills every time I talk about it because it's its so pure. It's so, I can't really explain it. It's um, a bonding that you have with like a brother or a sibling. I'm just grateful that after 16 stabs and he's still alive. Mind-blowing coincidences. Biologist Alexander Fleming decided to take a two-week vacation from studying staph cultures. When he returned, he found a strange fungal growth in his samples, a fungus that killed off all surrounding bacteria, and thus penicillin was discovered. Mind-blowing coincidences. Astronomers Arno Panzias and Robert Wilson were trying to eliminate annoying background hiss off their giant radio antenna. After ruling out interference from surrounding areas, nuclear tests, and pigeons living in the antenna, they discovered that they were listening to the radiation left over from the formation of the universe. Mind-blowing coincidences. Whether you believe in synchronicity or if you're a believer in mere coincidence, the draw of these topics is always in the introspection, in the queries. The questions you ask guide your fate. The questions you ask guide your fate. The more questions you ask, the more your fate knows where to find you. Synchronicity challenges cause and effect reality at a quantum level. Albert Einstein characterized this perfectly when he referred to particle physics as spooky action at a distance. So perhaps we're all facing the people and circumstances we need. Jazz tells her story. I always knew you'd leave. When I was about 
six months pregnant. I was on tour with my band Cowboy and Indian, and we were in Philadelphia, and I was having a particularly emotional day. I was actually pretty bummed out about the fact that I was pregnant. I was bummed out that I wasn't home with my family and that I was traveling across the country in a van with boys that didn't seem super perceptive about my situation and basically just found myself in a moment of a lot of self-pity. I was walking around Philadelphia with one of my bandmates because he was trying really hard to find a book and we couldn't find them at any of the bookstores that we went to and I was starting to feel sick and then I actually started to feel upset like my feelings were getting hurt because I thought why are we on a search for this book when clearly I don't feel well and I'm pregnant and I don't really want to be doing this but kept my mouth shut and kept walking, started to have this weird sensation that like maybe I was invisible and that maybe the reason why nobody was paying attention to me or offering to help or asking me if I was okay or anything like that was because maybe I actually wasn't there. And we finally walk into the last bookstore and I'm standing in the middle of the aisle and I feel myself starting to get really teary-eyed and an older gentleman walks up to me, says, has anybody ever drawn you before? I said, yeah, you know, I didn't really exactly understand what he meant, but yes, that I had my picture drawn before. I haven't ever seen anybody that looks anything like you, and I really want to draw you. And then he asked me if I had any Eastern European descent in me, and, and I said that I did, that I was part Czechoslovakian. He said he was too, and that he could tell by my eyes and my nose, and that he really wanted to draw my picture because he hadn't really ever seen anybody look like me before, which I thought was very interesting. Then he started asking other people in the bookstore, pulling them aside and bringing other people towards me and asking these people to look at me and asking these people if they had ever seen anybody that looked like me before. All of a sudden, I realized that it was such a beautiful and kind of insane moment for this older gentleman to come up to me at a time in my life when I was contemplating whether or not I was invisible or not, or whether or not I mattered. Basically, I was just having such a sad and emotional time. And then a stranger came up to me. And not only did he notice me, but the entire dialogue between the two of us was only about the fact that he had seen me. So it was really humbling and in some ways made me feel kind of silly to ever feel like it was me against the world. And that I don't believe that the world is compartmentalized like that, that we're all extremely connected and way more connected than we think. And not just in a spiritual, like hippie way, it's a fact. We are all unable to function without the efforts of everybody else. And sometimes you happen to be connected to somebody because they fix the roads or they fix your heart monitor or they make your food. Yeah, he kind of, he, he, gave, he asked me for my information. I told him that I was leaving the next morning to go to New York because we had another show in New York. And he said that he would drive to New York and draw my picture there. I never saw him again or heard of him or had any contact since then. Yeah, he's, he is kind of the reason why I was able to finish that last tour before I had my daughter. Previously to walking inside that bookstore, I had tried multiple times to just go back to the hotel. I didn't want to do it anymore, and I didn't even want to be on tour anymore. I barely made it to Philadelphia, and then I barely made it into that bookstore. He is the one who really put things in perspective for me.
Heard Jazz Mills of Top Girl Productions, Melissa Ragsdale, Camila Arellano, Katie Kuntz, Kelly Zamanik, Jennifer Felkner, Cameron Freeman, and Alex Taylor. The music you heard in this episode was performed by Jazz Mills, Katie Kuntz of Butch County, and the B-Boys. If you'd like to listen to more of their music, check them out on our website, www.ripplepuddle.com. Most of the research material was sourced from the World Wide Web and Stephen Strogatz's book, Sync, How Order Emerges from Chaos in the Universe. We highly recommend it. Poetry by Denise Levertov. Ripple Puddle is produced by Carla Taylor, with assistant production from Kelly Zamanik and collaboration from Melissa Ragsdale. Theme music by the wonderful Stephanie Hafer. Hot Tips theme by Carla Taylor and Brooke for free. If you'd like to pitch a story, email us at ripplepuddle at gmail.com. Or you can leave a message on our tip line, 313-389-6013. Thanks for listening. And friends, please review our podcast on iTunes. Give us stars, write about us, or tell friends. Every review makes a difference and helps us know that we're resonating with you. Here's a teaser for episode eight. Oh, shit. Oh, 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 shit. Oh. 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 Sh- Join us for episode eight. Oh, where we'll give you all of our shits. Shit. shit. And keep an ear out for constructive interference coming in just a couple of weeks. Oh, shit. This and much more.